your regularly scheduled program for a special announcement. The United States is headed for an entitlement crisis. Social Security and Medicare are going broke. You are going to have to pay the bill. You are going to have to pay the bill. Welcome to the Debt Dialogues, where you'll learn about the coming entitlement crisis, how it affects you, and what you can do about it. Debt Dialogues. Here's your host, Ayn Rand Institute Fellow, Don Watkins. Today is William Vogley. Bill is a senior editor of the Claremont Review of Books, and his most recent book, which we'll be talking about today, is The Pity Party, a mean-spirited diatribe against liberal compassion. Bill, welcome back to the Debt Dialogues. Pleasure to be with you, Don. So talk a little bit about what your book is about and why you decided to write it. Um, the topic, uh, I, I think that a lot of good nonfiction book topics turn out to be subjects that are hiding in plain sight, things that um, people are kind of always sort of aware of uh, and yet never really step back and notice in and of themselves. Um, I, I wrote a book, and we, we discussed it uh, a couple of years ago, called Never Enough, America's Limitless Welfare State. And that had, uh, I, I think, the same quality. Um, it, in the sort of one news cycle or one budget cycle to the next, the, the debate is always in terms of, well, we need, uh, the government isn't doing quite enough. It needs to be doing more. Nobody ever stepped back, it seemed to me, and asked the question, well, since we're always talking about more, and we're always saying that uh, we, that is, uh, we uh, liberals and journalists and democratic politicians, are always saying that whatever the government's doing isn't enough, Somebody needs to sort of pose the question, what would be enough? It turns out that's a question that doesn't have an answer and in a way isn't even supposed to have an answer. The uh, the pity party was sort of the same idea. Um, our, our moral and political discussions are frequently framed in terms of compassion or empathy or even simply kindness. And this is kind of the moral see we swim in, in a certain sense. Um, a lot of people think that what it means to be a good person, a moral person, basically breaks down to being compassionate, caring about others. That um, if, you're, if you meet that criterion, you're good, whatever else might be said about you, whatever else you might do or not do. And if you don't meet it, whatever other virtues you have don't really matter. Um, so I felt that it was necessary to step back and ask the question, well, this, this compassion, how does it work, sort of what, what is the moral logic of it, what does it, uh, how does it direct our politics, are we, um, are we really as, as well advised to adhere to it as its champions assume we are? That's what the book is about. So can you give me one or two examples of how <clears throat> that kind of argument plays out in the issues that we're talking about today? Yeah. Well, um, a lot of my writing has been about uh, domestic social policy questions. Um, and so I, I think that is where compassion is sort of deployed as a, as a rhetorical and political weapon. Um, people say, well, um, if, you really, if you really cared about the poor, if you really cared about suffering, you would support an expansion of, and then fill in the blank, social welfare program. Um, 
one one way it plays out is like this. Um, compassion turns out to be quite a bit trickier than um, than people assume, and part of the slipperiness of it is uh, sort of uh, locked right into the word itself. Compassion is a uh, an English word. It's been in the language for six, seven centuries now, derived from the Latin. And if you break it down into its, its etymology, what it really means is to suffer together. Um, now, sometimes we suffer together because we suffer from the same thing. This is sort of the moral logic of a, uh, a support group or an AA meeting in a church basement. You know, we all sit in uh, folding chairs in a circle and... Um, and the, the person who's there for the first time, the, uh, the, the veterans sort of say, look, uh, nobody else really knows what you're going through. The people here do. We've been through it. We understand um, there is that, that kind of sympathy and, and, and basic understanding. But mostly this idea of suffering together, um, when we talk about uh, in, in a broader sort of social and political context, means that... Not that we're suffering from the same thing, but that your distress causes me um, in a, a, a sort of internal unease. I walk past a uh, a beggar on the corner who has a cup out asking for uh, you know a, a, a sign. I haven't eaten for a day. Can you help? That kind of thing. And the idea is uh, that uh, this um, his suffering causes a kind not not the identical suffering, but a kind of suffering in me. Um, and this is sort of their, the, the, the interpersonal connection that compassion is meant to uh, sort of uh, uh, work from and to direct to acts of, of charity, generosity. And it, uh, at, at the, you know, when you sort of scale it up, the welfare state in, it, in the minds of its advocates is really just... Um, decency on a on a mega scale instead of one uh, business person walking by and putting a dollar in the cup of one beggar you have uh, this this massive redistribution program that everybody who can helps everybody who needs it one of the problems um, with with compassion is that um, precisely because it's about suffering together precisely because it says um, the motive that I have to worry about your situation, your hunger, your poverty, illness, whatever, um, is that it makes me feel bad. And the dangerous road you can go down is that um, since my motive is your suffering makes me feel bad, there's a, there's a terrible temptation to conclude that when I do something and no longer feel bad, your problem has been addressed. But that may not be the case. Um, the, the welfare state we've built, for example, in this country, devotes a huge amount of money by uh, a rough back-of-the-envelope calculation, over $3 trillion a year. That is more than $10,000 for every man, woman, and child in the United States of America, and the poverty rate has barely budged for 40 years now. This indicates that 
what we're doing is not having the desired intent. But one of the reasons why we keep doing it, rather than stepping back and saying, maybe we ought to try a different approach, is that the moral logic of compassion says, well, maybe the poor aren't really that much better off than they were 25 or 50 years ago. But we feel much better about what we're doing for them. So therefore, that's good enough. That is the unstated, but I think the powerful dynamic that leads, that, that turns moral urgency into a kind of weird moral indifference. One of the things I found really interesting was, you know, traditionally political theorists have, you get a political theory from John Locke that says this is what the moral purpose of government is, and this is how we should think about that purpose. You get, you know, Rousseau, you'll get Hobbes, you get these thinkers uh, who lay out a way to think about the purpose of government and what a moral social system is. Now, you point out that there's a way in which John Rawls, the Harvard philosopher, is doing that, and there's a way in which he's not when it comes to compassion. Can you expand on that a little bit? Well, I think uh, uh, Rawlsianism is uh, very interesting. We're, we're talking about, for um, for those people listening to our conversation who aren't um, uh, up to speed on their uh, philosophy department uh, reading assignment list, um, John Rawls, who died, uh, I think, about a decade ago now, um, taught for many years in the philosophy department at Harvard. Um, he wrote a book that came out in... 100% sure, but I think I it was think in 1971. Yeah, maybe. Right around there. <clears throat> so it's it's closing in on the half-century mark. Called A Theory of Justice. Uh, that um, hasn't uh, hasn't had the sort of breakout... In one sense, it, it, it hasn't been an influential book in the sense that the other um, uh, older thinkers you named had books that um, that influenced politics out in the world. It's, it's, it's been the subject of hundreds of doctoral dissertations and um, um, academic uh, symposia, but uh, has, not, um, has not been incorporated into any political party platform or, or anything like that. But it, it, it's, it's an interesting and important book because it, it sort of um, uh, actually expresses what <clears throat> a lot of people... I, um, are, are thinking, but um, uh, don't necessarily. Uh, it, it 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 crystallizes a, a sort of a mood and a tendency. Um, the uh, the the basic idea of a theory of justice is that um, the the sort of moral baseline is that everybody should be equal in every way, and then we're going to argue about how far we can depart from that. And Rawls' answer is that uh, we, uh, a, a just society permits inequality if and only to the extent those inequalities benefit the least well-off person in society. So if you come up with a cure for cancer, that helps a lot of people, including some desperately needy people. Um, and on that basis, um, it's morally correct to allow the uh, the uh, discoverer and the uh, 
person who um, um, uh, the company that, that distributes the the new miracle drug um, to make a lot of money. Um, but um, any inequality that doesn't pass that test, that doesn't make the the um, worst off person as as well off in absolute terms as possible, uh, is going to be forbidden. That's that sort of uh, a 600-page book uh, down to about one paragraph. You know, um, where where I think that that modern liberalism is sort of um, a rough and ready kind of Rawlsianism is that the more logic of that um, uh, that thesis in the theory of justice is that the, the the moral determinant of every situation, political and social, uh, interpersonal, is to ask the question, uh, or, or to sort of, uh, when you look upon a suffering person, to say, well, there but for fortune go I. Um, you are supposed to... Um, uh, Compassion in, in, or empathy, even uh, to, to use a word that that has uh, become more f- uh, popular recently, empathy involves being able to sort of imagine yourself in the situation of another, and this is what the the, uh, the Rawlsian, um, the the perfect Rawlsian person does is to. Um, Look upon a sick person and imagine, well, I could be that sick person, a hungry person, a homeless person. Well, that could be me. How would I feel if it were? Um, and therefore, <clears throat> and if and if I take seriously this possibility that if things had worked out differently, that might in fact be how my life ended up. What sort of social system would I design so that the person with um, so few advantages? Um, had uh, um, the, the best uh, state of affairs possible. Um, so I, I think that even a lot of people who haven't read Rawls or even heard of him are sort of, um, um, uh, w- when they're being uh, good modern 21st century liberals, are sort of um, speaking in this language. And the question is whether... How, how much weight that bridge will bear? How much um, the the idea that bo- there but for fortune go I should uh, organize our, our our sort of moral and social dealings, irrespective of all other considerations such as individual autonomy and freedom and respectability and many many other considerations that, apart from roles, most people think kind of need to be in the mix too yeah let me jump in right there because i think you give a really good example of where this logic leads and that's you talk about the way that we think about uh global poverty or the underdeveloped world and that if we really took seriously these ideas surely we should be doing far far more to sacrifice our standard of living in order to increase their standard of living. And yet, surprisingly, the people focused on compassion rarely push that agenda. It's a, a genuine dilemma, yes. Um, there was a speech that um, Barack Obama gave before he was elected to the presidency. He was a United States senator. I think it was a commencement address at a college um, where he uh, urged the graduates to make empathy a big part of their coming adult lives as as uh, citizens, and used the phrase that um, empathy calls on us to I'm, I'm 
paraphrasing clearly here, but uh, empathy calls on us to uh, widen the ambit of our concern. Um, that is, uh, it's it's not enough to uh, simply care about uh, your family and friends and uh, uh, people you know through work and your uh, um, neighbors. Um, a, a good person, an admirable person, a person who's leading a, a morally exemplary life, um, is has a deep concern about distant people, strangers. Well, okay. Um, this is uh, to to mention another Democratic politician who passed away a few months ago. This was the um, uh, the logic of Mar- Mario Cuomo's famous address. 30 years ago now, 31, to the uh, Democratic Convention in 1984, where he said um, that uh, the Democratic Party wanted, uh, uh, envisioned America as a family. And just as, um, um, you know, sort of we're all in this together. Well, when you start widening the ambit of concern, it's not clear why, where, and how you should stop. Um, and this is where the, the question of, of global rather than merely national um, 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 empathy and compassion comes in. Um, there's uh, Rawls too sort of makes this assumption. His his um, uh, he's talking about a social contract as opposed as uh, as opposed to a global contract, but it's. Um, it's not really clear. Uh, w- once you start down that road, that uh, you can confine the moral and political logic to uh, one nation's borders. And if compassion, we decide it really compels us to uh, be most urgently concerned about the poorest people anywhere on the planet. Well, then there are many, millions and millions of people around the world who are much worse off than the poorest American. Um, and one would think that um, uh, viewed, take it on its own terms it, um, to its logical extension, you would say that what we need is not a, a national policy of income redistribution and a national welfare state. We need a global uh, redistributive policy and welfare state, and that we have to address the poorest. Uh, there are hundreds of millions of people uh, in, in the world, and out of the seven plus billion humans uh, now alive who uh, live on um, less than a dollar twenty-five a day, less than five hundred dollars a year. Um, but in fact, it's sort of operationally because liberalism is a political force in this country, and it's it's. Politicians are elected to office and, and charged with writing laws for this country and enacting budgets and so forth. They concern themselves with um, uh, domestic poverty um, much more uh, attentively than they do uh, global poverty. The amount we spend on um, the uh, poor people here is um, many, many times greater than the amount we spend on the, the much more acutely suffering people beyond our borders. But you also note they've actually moved in even further in the other direction. That is, 
we're focused today not on compassion for the poor, but as they'll put it, compassion for the 99%. So compassion for everybody who makes less than $300,000 a year. How do you explain that yeah. sort of shift in focus? Um, it's uh, <clears throat> Part of it is a, a, a difficult political calculation. Um, liberalism in the 1950s and 60s had to uh, make an adjustment. Uh, it had um, sort of defined itself in the New Deal as the philosophy, the political ideology suitable to hard times. Um, when uh, in the early 1930s there was uh, uh, an unemployment rate of, of some 25 percent. Um, so uh, the business of being the majority party in a nation where many people were in acute economic distress and many others were legitimately worried that they were one paycheck or one argument with the boss away from joining them, uh, living in a tent in a park or something, um, uh, you sort of had this, this, this politics for hard times. Um, now liberalism in the 50s and 60s, when there was this unexpected and, and extraordinary economic boom after World War II, it had to recalibrate. And so the message that liberalism was, was uh, promoting uh, by the time of the 1960s, the Great Society, Robert Kennedy's brief political uh, presidential campaign before his assassination in 1968, was that we were, we were a society now where, um, in fact, most people were doing pretty well. And there were um, the, the sort of moral shame of it was that despite this broad affluence, there were stubborn pockets of poverty, um, and there were um, people who had been left out of the great elevation of living standards. And so we had a moral obligation to, um, to attend to the needs of, of those, um, to borrow from some Supreme Court language, discrete and insular minorities who had been um, excluded from the American dream. After the Arab oil uh, embargo of 1973, after the uh, economic boom became uh, much more attenuated, uh, uh, there was a widespread feeling of economic inse insecurity um, that has never really gone away. Um, and so liberalism has, in a sense, tried to go back to where it was in the 1930s, to once again be a, um, a populist party and to th thereby renounce the, um, the, the, the language and logic that it uh, dallied with in the 1960s. So um, clearly, the uh, Occupy Wall Street slogan, we are the 99%, takes that to just about its... Uh, uh, logical conclusion. You're trying to, uh, majority rule is the essence of democracy. Um, and there's, if you accept, as, as apparently only so many people have done so far, what the Occupy Wall Street was saying, um, uh, then there is this 
enormous, overwhelming majority of people who are poor or economically insecure and suffering, and then this very small minority of people who are doing well and who are um, uh, benefiting at the expense of the rest of us. And the way politics ought to work is that we, the, the huge majority, suffering, exploited majority, should vote against our oppressors, the 1%. Um, this also aligns very nicely with the, um, uh, the kind of topspin of the idea of, of um, making compassion the moral engine of our politics, in the sense that um, when, as, as was the case with the liberal argument in the 1960s in a prosperous time, um, uh, people, most people feel they're doing pretty well. They've made advances. They have houses that they didn't used to have and cars, and, and um, their lives are going along pretty well. Um, compassion is um, always directed at the uh, people who are left out of the, the rosy picture. Um, but um, now people, um, uh, as as by the argument about the 99%, uh, people are encouraged not simply to f feel sorry for, to sympathize with other identifiable uh, sufferers. Uh, people are uh, people are sort of following uh, compassion's logic to conclude, uh, well, they ought, I ought to feel sorry for myself, and other people ought to feel sorry for me. I'm I'm not only obligated to be compassionate, I'm entitled to be empathized with, and if people who are better off than me aren't empathetic about my plight, my problems, then I've got a, a, a real legitimate gripe here, and I ought to do something about it, and something ought to be done for me. I want to quote a line from your book that I found intriguing. So in part, you're, you're talking about why it's wrong to issue a blanket condemnation of self-interest, and you sketch out a notion of uh, what you call self-interest well understood, and then you write... What self-interest well understood does not encompass, however, is anything like self-interest heroically or nobly understood. And what I found intriguing is that this is precisely how Ayn Rand thinks of self-interest, and she sees herself as trying to point out its heroic nature, in that if you understand it not to be about exploitation but about creation, the, when you see people who set demanding creative purposes, say to create a new phone or to put a car within the reach of every American and then pursue it with integrity to that purpose over all sorts of obstacles and better human life in the end, that that is precisely something that should be morally inspiring. And that by contrast, what she so objects to um, with the issue of compassion, or she'll put it altruism, which as you point out, is not, not benevolence or being warm towards other people, but actually otherism, putting others above mm. self, is that what it ends up doing is saying that these people are bad because they've achieved something and benefited in the process and that they have a duty then to sacrifice it for people who haven't achieved. And so I'm curious what you think about her kind of take on these issues that you're covering. Yeah. Well, I, the, the phrase self-interest well understood uh, comes from um, uh, Democracy in America by de Tocqueville, um, a book that's... Uh, Based on a trip this uh, uh, Frenchman took to America in the uh, around 1830, 
Um, and so he was uh, <clears throat> one of its translators, Harvey Mansfield at Harvard uh, University. Um, says that Democracy in America is the best book ever written about democracy and the best book ever written about America. So it's <laughs> it's worth reading. Um, and um, uh, Tocqueville uh, pondered what he found in America and thought it was um, <clears throat> uh, thought it was indicative of the the sort of wave of the democratic future. And he thought that. Um, what the coming age of democracy, uh, growing from strength to strength, um, would uh, that one of its problems and dangers was that, um, in in contrast to the age of of that had preceded it of aristocracy, um, where there where people had a certain uh, sort of a long time frame and a sense of. Um, stewardship and trusteeship about the society they inhabited. Um, he felt that in a democratic age, when every, everything was equal, that people, uh, it, was, it was naturally uh, natural to respond by um, focusing entirely on one's own life and family and immediate um, uh, gratifications. And he, he, he said that the sort of partially uh, modifying influence was this force that he observed in America of uh, self-interest well understood. Um, people um, pursued their own ambitions, dreams, um, but they, in, in the course of doing so, they um, considered um, long-term effects, impacts on others, the um, the needs of their neighborhood and surrounding community, um, so they they were in a sense um, through uh, without intending to they they became sort of socially aware and um, conscientious and and engaged in a kind of stewardship anyway. Now in in uh, as as I understand Tocqueville's argument. Um, this <clears throat> this takes a, this takes us only so far. This does not take us all the way back to what he considered the distinctive virtues of pre-democratic civilizations. There are self-interest, well understood, does not um, uh, it, it, it leads people to be uh, solid, reliable, decent, community-minded members of uh, society, but there are no saints or heroes or martyrs um, who emerge from the, the process of self-interest uh, well understood. Um, I, I, I'm not uh, uh, an objectivist myself. I'm, I'm aware of, um, of um, the, uh, uh, the Rand argument that you sketch out. Um, I think it's... Um, Interesting. I, I would say that my um, my demural about it is that um, it is true that uh, there are people who, through self-interest, uh, will um, sort of like what John Rawls was talking about, will um, cure diseases, uh, discover, uh, make new inventions, come up with um, uh, new ways of business, but um, self-interest. Um, could lead in, in other directions. I mean, 
it it could be um, the, the, presumably Paris Hilton um, has her own understanding of self-interest, um, and it leads her not to um, um, work in a laboratory all day to find a cure for cancer. It leads her to um, uh, go on shopping sprees and uh, go from hotel to hotel and um, make sex tapes with her boyfriend and. Um, I'm, it seems to me that there is, um, in a sense, that if, if we're going to sort of uh, justify um, uh, individual, the, the space to live one's life, then um, trying, to, <clears throat> trying to bring in the benefits, that the sort of ancillary unintended benefits, um, really only works if you're going to talk about people who actually provide them. But there are a lot of uh, people who pursue their own self-interest who um, provide no discernible benefits. I think they should be left alone, not for the sake of the good they might do, but simply for the sake of living in a society with a, a, a rule of law that is uh, uniform and clear and precise and that leaves people alone even to be their sort of potty little selves, you know? So let's end with this. Um, the The last section of your book talks about the attempts, generally very failed attempts, I think, to answer or pose the compassion framework and some suggestions with uh, for how to do it better. So why don't you just give us an overview of that? Mm-hmm. Well, I... Um... I note that conservatives are always, um, or, or opponents of, of um, liberalism, some do, some don't call themselves conservatives in American politics, are always sort of put on the wrong foot by compassion. Um, uh, you say something in opposition to or critical about the liberal project, and you immediately are, are uh, find yourself... Um, um, pushing back against the proposition that you're a mean, callous, um, indifferent, um, cold-hearted SOB, you know. Um, so I, I think that uh, in, in sort of trying to navigate in this political situation that many non- or anti-liberals have, um, uh, have had difficulty. One effort was George W. Bush's compassionate conservatism, which didn't work out very well in practice and wasn't very well fleshed out in theory. In the last chapter of The Pity Party, I wind up not quite endorsing, but urging strong consideration for proposals that have been put forward by such people as Milton Friedman, William Buckley, Charles Murray, there are different The idea is that um, it, it certainly seems like the, the political reality is that we're going to have something along the lines of a welfare state no matter what. As long as we're, we're both a democracy and a, and a country where people are, where the, what the Joseph Schumpeter called the creative destruction of capitalism, leaves some people suffering adrift, unemployed, down on their luck, we're going to have public policies to address that. I think the uh, near-term objective 
for people who worry about their consequences is to make these as <clears throat> as um, benign as possible. What I think that involves mostly is making them as clear and simple as possible. We have to, to um, borrow a phrase from uh, William Buckley that I used in my first book, Never Enough, um, the, the political logic of um, our current welfare state is to blacken the sky with crisscrossing dollars. The welfare state is not, it doesn't, isn't just by happenstance that it's so unbelievably complicated with lots of programs, lots of funding streams, um, all sorts of eligibility requirements, uh, lots of, of administrators to uh, bestow benefits. This all happens for a, um, a political reason. Because it's so complicated, there's money flying in all sorts of directions, lots and lots of people can acquire the illogical, mathematically impossible, but nevertheless beguiling idea that it is the government somehow has a magic way to redistribute money so that nearly everybody winds up with more than they started out with. What I think we ought to do for the sake of, of um, clarity, of healthy self-government, is to simplify that. Charles Murray proposes that we wipe out every program, Social Security, Medicare, Medicaid. The, uh, the, the list in his book goes on, uh, In Our Hands is the name of this uh, book he wrote a decade ago, um, goes on for several pages in an appendix. And he says we, re we replace it with a simple sort of um, uh, direct cash grant. Um, nobody will starve. Nobody will freeze. What you make of your life after that is your business, not our business, except insofar as we voluntarily take it on. Um, William Buckley's proposal in a book uh, the, um, that he wrote in 1974 reforms was that um, the federal government get out of the business of uh, any kind of, of uh, redistributive program, except as, as it pertains to people living in states uh, where the income is below the national average. Um, in, a, <clears throat> in other words, um, if you're living in a prosperous state, New York or California, um, your programs will be state-based. If you're living in Mississippi, your programs will be federal-based. Once again, you clear the sky of these crisscrossing dollars, and people can focus on what they really want to do. Uh, it seems to me that this ties into the question of compassion by uh, asking exactly what it is we want to do for people rather than um, indulging in policies that make us feel good but don't really do a lot of good. My guest today has been William Vogley. Bill, thank you for being part of the Debt Dialogues. My pleasure. So just a few comments on the, this interview. The power of compassion as an argument comes from the fact that it's an appeal to morality, specifically that it's an appeal to the idea that we have an obligation to sacrifice ourselves for others. And if they have a need, if they have a desire that we can fulfill, our duty is to set aside our hopes, dreams, values, and priorities in order to serve them. And so the, so long as you accept that basic premise, so long as you accept the idea that we do have this duty to sacrifice for others, then there's no way to really oppose the compassion argument. And 
This is why I think the only way to oppose it is from the perspective of a different moral code, and specifically Ayn Rand's code of rational selfishness. Now, Rand called her code a new conception of egoism. And the idea that it's new is important because it means that it's something that you have to think about. You have to work to understand. You can't just assume that what you think is selfish is what she's talking about, what qualifies. And what she's doing, and this is part of what I indicated in the interview, is she what she's saying is that if you actually understood self-interest, if you actually understood what is in a person's interest, then you would never equate it with a Bernie Madoff, an Al Capone, or a Paris Hilton that what is in an actual person's interest is to be a producer. It's to be somebody like Steve Jobs, who has productive, creative goals, and then is dedicated to achieving them. Goals that create values, that create wealth, that solve human problems, and that bring us to new vistas. Now, not all of us can be a Steve Jobs. That isn't the point. But the point is that whatever our level of uh, intellect, whatever our level of ability to dedicate ourselves to the pursuit of our happiness through the pursuit of productive goals. That is really the essence of what it means to pursue self-interest and that we deal with one another not by asking for alms or granting them, but by trade. And that that is really the core of what actually breeds goodwill among men. It's that nobody's demanding sacrifices and nobody's giving sacrifices. We're dealing with one another with respect. And so the compassion argument is really completely immoral because what it really means is that, no, the right way to behave is we should be seeking giving alms. And who are the people who have to give them? Who are the people who have to sacrifice? Those who achieve. And the more you achieve, the more you have to sacrifice. The less you achieve, the more you're entitled to benefits, the more you're entitled to other people's achievements. And so from Ayn Rand's perspective, that is totally immoral and really perverse. Because if human life requires creating values, punishing those who create values is an injustice that's going to undermine our ability to pursue life and to achieve happiness. Of course, you can help others. Of course, you can be compassionate. And if it's somebody that you value and you can help them at no sacrifice to yourself, you ought to be. But your primary focus should be on making the most of your own life. And the reason we need a government, the, re the whole pr purpose of politics, is to protect your ability to dedicate yourself to achieving your own life and your own happiness. So that even if it's good for you to help out a friend, to institute, quote, help, i.e., in reality, sacrifice in government is to completely overthrow the purpose of government. It turns it from a protector of our freedom into the collector and instrument of our sacrifices. For more on this issue, see Atlas Shrugged, see my book with your own Brook, Free Market Revolution, and definitely check out the forthcoming book by Peter Schwartz, in defense of selfishness, which I think covers all these in a lot more depth. And in the meantime, you can listen to my interview with Peter Schwartz in a previous episode of the Debt Dialogues. With that, it's time to bring this podcast to a close. If you enjoy this podcast, please take a minute to give us a review on iTunes. To learn more, you can visit endthedebtdraft.com. And for the latest, I encourage you to like our Facebook page, facebook.com slash debtdraft, and let the world know that it's time to put an end to entitlement exploitation. See you next time. Thank you.
Debt Dialogues is property of the Ayn Rand Institute. Its content is intended for private use only.